Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, speaking to you post-Christmas and experiencing the afterglow of Christmas cheer. Yes, there was Christmas cheer in my house, despite my own scrooginess, which is scroogey indeed. I have lamented elsewhere that I do not care for Christmas. I will lament here again, I do not care for Christmas. And yet, even I, whose heart is as compact as one of Scrooge's little coals that he reluctantly feeds into the stove to keep his emporium warm, even I felt myself experiencing some Christmas cheer on the day as the children young adults, were unwrapping their gifts as the wife and I were unwrapping our scanty gifts. Scanty because we neither wanted nor desired anything, and we each exchanged a couple little things. Um, my big my big gift that I requested was a fogless shave mirror, which probably cost all of $6. But the kids were happy, and when they're happy... I'm happy, and when I'm happy, nothing. When I'm happy, nothing. You know, there's no no residual effects of my happiness that spread through the house. Nobody cares about my feelings. That's just the way it is when you're the dad. Nobody gives a shit about how dad is feeling. And, you know, there's some relief in that because you you feel no obligation to feel one way or another since nobody's taking their cues from you. As parents, we take our cues from how our children are feeling. Uh, My spouse, Martha, takes her cues from how she is feeling. Nobody takes their cues from me. But 
Um, you know, the soft glow of Christmas cheer continues to radiate in the house. We are all in a fairly good mood. My scrooginess has dissipated until the year to come, and I am excited for the coming year. I am excited to delve back into Frankenstein with you, despite the fact that it is not going well. The reading is going fine, as you know. We're getting through it. I'm being mildly entertaining, which is pretty much, I think, the best you can hope for with a podcast of this type. Me sitting alone in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, speaking into a microphone while reading a book. I mean, that does not bode well in terms of entertainment value. We've established that. We're all okay with it. And here we are. What I'm referring to is the fact that I'm not even sure the book itself is a good book. I know it's a classic. And so I'm trusting that it's going to get better. But right now I'm, I'm a little bit down on the book because so little seems to happen. We've just concluded a chapter where Frankenstein says again, he's about to be destroyed. He has said it time and time and time again. He has yet to be destroyed. And that's all, that's all I want. All I want is to see him dismembered. Physically, psychologically, I don't care. I want him and all of his loved ones to suffer under the cruel, iron-like grip of the big buddy. I want heads ripped from necks. I want limbs flung into lakes. I want noses chomped off and spit into the gaping maws of, on, of, of spectators. You know, just they, they, they get a nose spit into their stupid mouths. That's what I want. I, I want murders. I want arson. I want terror and looting. That's what I want. And what do I have instead? Gossip from Geneva. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. We pick up on volume one, chapter two, uh, chapter three. How is it only chapter three? What? How is that possible? I guess it is. All right. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm looking at, I'm stupidly looking at a, uh, God, did I lose my place? What the hell? Uh, okay. Chapter seven. They've just gone, uh, they've just gone on a walk. He and Clerval. And everything's jo jo jolly and fine. Everything's terrific. We returned to our college on a Sunday afternoon. They didn't find the big buddy. My own spirits were high. I bounded along with feelings of unbridled joy and hilarity. I'm bored. Chapter 7. On my return, I found the following letter from my father. Great. Now we're going to hear another fucking letter. This is such a stupid literary device as we've already gone over because, because Frankenstein is orally relating to Walton who is uh, writing to his sister and we are reading those letters. We're reading the letters to his sister. I mean, it's fourth hand. It's just a bad way to structure this book. Okay, my dear Victor, you have probably waited impatiently for a letter to fix the date of your return to us. And I was at first tempted to write only a few lines, merely mentioning the day on which I should expect you. But that would be a cruel kindness, and I dare not do it. What would be your surprise, my son, when you expect a happy and glad welcome to behold, on the contrary, tears and wretchedness. Please let Elizabeth be dead. Please let her have keeled over 
or or thrown herself into a stream or let have Justine Moritz uh, taken a knife to her neck. Let's hope it's Elizabeth who's dead. And how, Victor, can I relate our misfortune? Absence cannot have rendered you callous to our joys and griefs, and how shall I inflict pain on my long-absent son? I wish to prepare you for the woeful news, but I know it is impossible. Even now your eye skims over the page to seek the words which are to convey you the horrible tidings. William is dead. We don't even know William. We don't care about William. William's like the younger brother who like we haven't spent any time with William. Why do I care that he's dead? I don't give a shit about William. That sweet child who smiles, delighted, and warmed my heart, who was so gentle yet so gay. Victor, oh, okay, good. He is murdered. I mean, do you hear that? That's an audible sigh of relief on my part that it is not some natural cause. It is not some fever that whisked him away in the night he has been murdered. I mean, I'm just delighted. I'm delighted at the news of murder. I will not attempt to console you, but will simply relate the circumstances of the transaction. Oh, I like that word to describe a murder, a transaction, as if between two willing parties. Last Thursday, May 7th, I, my niece, and your two brothers went to walk in Plain Palais. The evening was warm and serene, and we prolonged our walk farther than usual. It was already dusk before we thought of returning, and then we discovered that William and Ernest, who had gone on before, were not to be found. We accordingly rested on a seat until they should return. Presently Ernest came and inquired if we had seen his brother. He said that he had been playing with him, that William had run away to hide himself, and that he vainly sought for him, and afterwards waited for him a long time, but he did not return. This account rather alarmed us. Yes, I should think so. And we continued to search for him until night fell, when Elizabeth conjectured that he might have returned to the house. He was not there. We returned again with torches, for I could not rest. I mean, finally, there's torches being lit. You know what I mean? That's what we want in Frankenstein. We want lit torches. We want mobs. We want murders. Please let William have been murdered by the big buddy who somehow has transported himself to Geneva. Please let that be the case. I could not rest when I thought that my sweet boy had lost himself and was exposed to all the damps and dews of night. Elizabeth also suffered extreme anguish. About five in the morning, I discovered my lovely boy, whom the night before I had seen blooming and active in health, stretched on the grass, livid and motionless. The print of the murderer's finger was on his neck. You know, when we did Obscure Season 1 and the kids died, I mean, it was horrible. Right, like there was the there was the big murder suicide uh, in Jude the Obscure, and it was atrocious because we had context, and we felt like we knew this couple, we felt like we knew these kids, we were invested in their happiness. So much had transpired before Jude and Sue could be with each other. So much longing and pain, and yet here I'm left cold because I don't give a shit about this family. I don't give a shit about William, who I don't know. I don't know William. You know. 
I don't care. He was convinced, you know, he's got a finger on his fingerprint on his neck. Fine. He was strangled, whatever. He was conveyed home and the anguish that was visible in my countenance betrayed the secret to Elizabeth. She was very earnest to see the corpse. At first I attempted to prevent her, but she persisted, and entering the room where it lay, hastily examined the neck of the victim, and clasping her hands, exclaimed, O God, I have murdered my darling child. She fainted, and was restored with extreme difficulty. When she again lived, it was only to weep and sigh. She told me that same evening William had teased her to let him wear a very valuable miniature that she possessed of your mother. This picture is gone, and was doubtless the temptation which urged the murderer to the deed. We have no trace of him at present, although our our exertions to discover him are unremitted, but they will not restore my beloved William. Come, dearest Victor, you alone can console Elizabeth. She weeps continually and accuses herself unjustly as the cause of his death. Her words pierce my heart. We are all unhappy, but will not that be an additional motive for you, my son, to return and be our comforter, your dear mother? Alas, Victor, I now say thank God she did not live to witness the cruel, miserable death of her youngest darling. Come, Victor, not brooding thoughts of vengeance against the assassin, but with feelings of peace and gentleness that will heal instead of festering the wounds of our minds. Enter the house of mourning, my friend, but with kindness and affection for those who love you and not with hatred for your enemies, your affectionate and afflicted father, Alphonse Frankenstein, Geneva, May 12th, 17-. Well, I mean, that was a tender-hearted, sweet, and kindly letter. And, you know, if if it was about some kid that I knew, or even, you know... Maybe had passed on the street one time and seen him, you know, pushing a pushing a hoop with a stick. You know the way they do? You know, pushing hoops with sticks, the way kids do. I would have been like, oh, that's terrible. But William is just a is just a whisper to me. He's a figment. He's a specter. He's nothing to me. I don't mean to be cold hearted. I don't mean to be cold hearted. Uh but you know, the warm glow of Christmas is still upon me. Am I gonna am I gonna stifle that warm glow, am I going to put a blanket on it for the sake of some kid who we have not spent more than a paragraph on in this story? Not really. I choose cheer. I choose goodwill and cheer. So yes, I feel, I feel bad. I'll admit I feel bad. I don't like feeling bad. I don't like feeling empathy even for these figments, but I feel very, I feel very bad. And I hope Victor's okay. Because this is terrible news for anybody. And it must be horrible for Alphonse. Oh, God damn it. I didn't want to feel bad. I was stealing my heart against caring about William. And now despite myself, I do. God damn it. What is this world coming to when I have to care about, about, about poor little William? Who I didn't even know. Who's just a fictional character in this stupid book. And yet, I don't even like the book that much. 
And yet, you know, he puts on a on a on a on a on a brooch or some necklace or some cameo or something, and then the murderer rips it from his neck and strangles him for it. And I feel bad. <sighs> I hate feeling bad. Clerval, who had watched my countenance as I read this letter, was surprised to observe the despair that succeeded to the joy I had first expressed on receiving news from my friends. I threw the letter on the table and covered my face with my hands. My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed Henry when he perceived me weep with bitterness. Are we always to be unhappy? My dear friend, what has happened? That's a good line, right? That just speaks to the, to the human condition. Are we always to be unhappy? In my experience, friends, yes. In my experience, absolutely. At least to a certain degree. It is the human condition to be unhappy. It is one of the four noble truths. I motioned to him to take up the letter while I walked up and down the room in the extremest agitation. Tears also gushed from the eyes of Clerval as he read the account of my misfortune. I can offer no consolation, my friend, said he. Your disaster is irreparable. What do you intend to do? To go instantly to Geneva. Come with me, Henry, to order the horses. During our walk, Clerval endeavored to say a few words of consolation. He could only express his heartfelt sympathy. Poor William, said he. Dear lovely child, he now sleeps with his angel mother. Who that had seen him bright and joyous in his young beauty but must weep over his untimely loss? To die so miserably, to feel the murderer's grasp, how much more a murderer that could destroy such radiant innocence. Poor little fellow, one only consolation have we. His friends mourn and weep, but he is at rest. The pang is over. His sufferings are at an end forever. A sod covers his gentle form, and he knows no pain. He can no longer be a subject for pity. We must reserve that for his miserable survivors. Well, Clerval has a way with words. I mean, he really does. If it was me, I'd be like, oh, man, that sucks. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. I can't. Oh, wow. I can't even believe it. William? Fuck me. Like, that's what I would be like. I don't think I'd be essentially composing poetry on the walk to rent the horses. I just don't think I'd, I would have the presence of mind to do that. They're, they're beautiful thoughts. We, the survivors, are to be pitied, not William, who is at rest. In this season of birth and rebirth, well, really, I guess just birth. I guess Easter's the season of rebirth. But maybe the world is reborn when Christ the Savior is born. You know, maybe the, uh, Christ the Savior is born and we are reborn. Christ the Savior is born. And now, a break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to reading. Clerval spoke thus as we hurried through the streets. The words impressed themselves on my mind, and I remembered them afterwards in solitude. But now... As the horses arrived, I hurried into a cabriolet and bade farewell to my friend. My journey was very melancholy. At first, I wished to hurry on, for I longed to console and sympathize with my loved and sorrowing friends. But when I drew near my native town, I slackened my progress. I could hardly sustain the multitude of feelings that crowded into my mind. I passed through scenes familiar to my youth, but which I had not seen for nearly six years. Hey, the Dairy Queen. Hey, look, it's the Dairy Queen. Oh, because he's sad, but he's, he's kind of psyched to see the Dairy Queen. Oh, hey, it's the Dairy Queen. Mr. Carter, I see the Dairy Queen. I'm going to get a blizzard. How altered everything might be during that time. One sudden and desolating change had taken place, but a thousand little circumstances might have by degrees worked other alterations, which, although they were done more tranquilly, might not be the less decisive. Yes, that's the butterfly effect, right? Butterfly flaps its wings over there, and then next thing you know, little William was being murdered. Classic butterfly effect. Fear overcame me. I dared not advance, dreading a thousand nameless evils that made me tremble, although I was unable to define them. I remained two days at Lausanne, in this, I guess, a town, Lausanne, I don't know, in this painful state of mind. I contemplated the lake, the waters were placid, all around was calm, and the snowy mountains, the the palaces of nature, and now we have... A footnote. Palaces of nature, probably from the rhyme of the ancient mariner or some shit. Uh, From Byron's Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Okay, fine. That was published two years before. So again, we have an anachronism. Well, maybe not. Oh, no. Yeah, definitely an anachronism. You know, Mary, you fucked up again, Mary. All your literary illusions are fucking off, Mary. Why do you keep fucking up the literary illusions? Don't you know any literary illusions that are from the time, Mary? You don't, do you? 
Shame on you, Mary. Shame. By degrees, the calm and heavenly scene restored me, and I continued my journey towards Geneva. The road ran by the side of the lake, which became narrower as I approached my native town. I discovered more distinctly the black sides of Jura, J-U-R-A, I don't know, and maybe that's a mountain, and the bright summit of Mont Blanc. I wept like a child. Dear mountains, my own beautiful lake, how do you welcome your wanderer? Your summits are clear. The sky and lake are blue and placid. Is this to prognosticate peace or to mock at my unhappiness? I fear, my friend, that I shall render myself tedious by dwelling on these preliminary circumstances. Yes, well, Frankenstein, you have absolutely rendered yourself tedious up to this point, so why stop now? Victor, you've been tedious all along. Your tedium continues unabated. But they were days, so in a, by dwelling on my circumstances, but they were days of comparative happiness, and I think of them with pleasure. My country, my beloved country, who but a native can tell the delight I took in again beholding thy streams, thy mountains, and more than all thy lovely lake. Yet as I drew nearer home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around, and when I could hardly see the dark mountains, I felt still more gloomily. The picture appeared a vast and dim scene of evil. Evil! And I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of human beings. Alas, I prophesied truly and failed only in one single circumstance, that in all the misery I imagined and dreaded, I did not conceive the hundredth part of the anguish I was destined to endure. See, this is what I'm talking about. He keeps talking about all the terrible things that are going to befall him, and they never seem to befall him. Yes, William died. Okay, that's a step in the right direction. Let's keep going, Frankie. Let's keep making things more terrible, please, Frankie. It was completely dark when I arrived in the environs of Geneva. The gates of the town were already shut, and I was obliged to pass the night at Secheron, a village at the distance of half a league from the city. The sky was serene, and as I was unable to rest, I resolved to visit the spot where my poor William had been murdered. As I could not pass through the town, I was obliged to cross the lake in a boat to arrive at Plain Palais. During this short voyage, I saw the lightnings playing on the summit of Mont Blanc in the most beautiful figures. The storm appeared to approach rapidly, and on landing, I ascended a low hill that I might observe its progress. It advanced, the heavens were clouded, and I soon felt the rain coming slowly in large drops, but its violence quickly increased. And that's all I'm looking for. I'm looking for an approaching storm. I understand its advance has been slow to this point, but the rain has now begun to fall, and its violence, let us hope, quickly increases. I mean, please let this be foreshadowing. Please let it be foreboding. Please let the lightnings on the top of Mont Blanc hit us square in the fucking face. 
so that we can proceed in this book, you know, with something approaching excitement. That's all I'm looking for. You know, make the page turner a page turner. That's why they call it a page turner. The guy who owns CNN is called Ted Turner. The singer is Tina Turner. But this is a page turner, or so it is meant to be. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. I mean, violence is now increasing. Let us, let us end on a hopeful note, right? Let us end with the thought that everything is about to get more terrible because that's all we want. I know, I sound like a... I'm the one who's being tedious. Me and Victor Frankenstein both. Tedium, tedium, tedium. That's all we do. You know, him relating his doom, me relating my complaints. This isn't a good podcast. This is a terrible podcast. You know, one of the things about this podcast when I started was I thought, I'm not going to like Jude the Obscure. The book's going to be bad. Uh, it'll, be a terrible, it'll be a terrible endeavor. We're going to get through all of it, though. Um, but what happened is the book turned out to be excellent. And I think the podcast was pretty good as a result of the book being excellent. It was no, through no doing of mine. All I'm doing is commenting as I go. But if the book is not entertaining me, then maybe the podcast is not entertaining. Maybe the you know maybe this is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where I said it's going to be terrible and then it turns out to be terrible. Now, we can say, well, obscure season 1 was good through no fault through, you know, not because of you. You don't get the credit. Well, maybe I don't have to take the blame then for season 2 being kind of dull. Maybe I don't get the blame. The difference is now people are subscribing to hear it and I feel added responsibility right? They're paying actual money to hear me rambling and complaining about Victor Frankenstein. It's no good. It's really no good. I mean, the pace has to pick up. More people have to die for this to be worthwhile. This has to turn into a fucking bloodbath pretty soon, right? Alphonse has to die. Elizabeth has to die. Uh, uh, the Moritz girl has to die. Henry Clerval has to die. Everybody has to die except for Victor Frankenstein. The professors have to die. Walton has to die. Mrs. Savile in England has to die. Everybody has to die. The ship has to capsize. Sailors need to drown. Everything needs to fall apart soon. Well, it's New Year's, you know. New Year's where you are has already arrived. And 2021, I think, promises to be a better year than 2020, if for no other reason than it could hardly be worse. So I am extending my New Year's wishes to all of you to celebrate the New Year, to have a little champagne or whatever you drink, some sparkling cider, some grape juice, a glass of oat milk, whatever whets your whistle. But let us all toast to the new year. Thank you for being with me in 2020 and making my year just a little bit brighter. And uh, let us reconvene in the coming year and get through this fucking book. All right. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedrin. 
join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.